Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. When I was growing up, there was a little sled stowed away in our garage. It wasn't up to the standards of the Winter Olympics. No, it was definitely an ad hoc sled, a homemade sled, a length of plywood with two pieces of metal pinned to its underside. It didn't even go very well in the snow. After a couple of feet, it would overturn, and there you'd be, face down and a mouthful of snow. But just the same, this almost dangerous little sled played a role in Christmas years ago. The very early 1980s Christmas night, and of course this is why I remember the falling snow so very well. Christmas night and dinner over, and darkness early, and curtains pulled, and turkey sandwiches still to come. And in those days of hardly any television stations, settling down to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, and knowing that in the houses all around, and in the towns all around, up and down the country, everyone was doing the same. Everyone that Christmas night was curled in their chairs and stretched on their sofas, watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, and thinking of those turkey sandwiches still to come. And this was togetherness. The film ends then with the Nazis melted, serve them right, and Indiana Jones triumphant. We move and stretch and discuss the film, the Ark and Indiana doing their thing, and those Nazis, those ultimate baddies. And then I turn to the window and pull back the curtain and look out onto the dark garden. But no, because the yellow kitchen lamp has been left on and its light shines out into the night and onto the snow, I shout. It's been snowing, and there's a rush of brothers to the window to check the facts, to check I'm not lying, that I'm not a big liar. And I'm not a big liar. The snow has been falling heavily, silently, all the while as the Nazis have been melting, all the while as Indiana Jones has been cracking his whip, and the snow is still falling heavily now. I rush to the garage to drag our little sled out of its corner to get out onto the snow. We're not the first. Our long road in suburban Derry is almost always quiet, but not tonight. Tonight, the fellas next door are already out on the snow on their superior sled. And best of all, this long road is a hillside road falling on a steep gradient towards the foil. And so on a snowy night, it comes into its own. It turns into a bobsled run. And so we take to the snow with abandon, 
And sure enough, I'm tipped over after about five seconds and I have my first mouthful of freshly fallen snow and this is the best bit. A few seconds later, and I changed my mind, I kneeled on the snow and rubbed snow out of my hair and my eyes and then I stare because there's Mrs. Timoney from up the road, my mother's sensible friend, Mrs. Timoney, Mrs. Timoney, whose hair and whose clothes are always just so, who drives around in her big silver sab. There's Mrs. Timoney lying on her stomach on a big painted sled. There's Mrs. Timoney in a furry Russian hat flying down the hill right in front of me, her arms and her legs waving around. And this is the best bit. There's Mrs. Timoney shouting as she flies through the snow and everyone stares and her hat flies off and then her sled ploughs into the snow at the bottom of the hill and she rolls off and dusts herself down and, come on, lads, back up the hill again. And she picks up her furry hat and off she goes and she's laughing her head off. I rush back into the house Mrs. Timoney's out there on a sled. I roar, flying up and down the road. Come on and look. My parents don't believe me, not for a minute. But at last, I persuade them into coats and hats and gloves. And out onto the road they go. And now they too are treated to this vision of a flying Mrs. Timoney, a screeching Mrs. Timoney, a Mrs. Timoney laughing and laughing. And her hair isn't just so any longer. No way. I stop. I look around. All up and down the road, our neighbours have emerged onto the snow, are chatting under the yellow street lamps, are sliding and sledding and shouting, and still the snow is falling. It doesn't seem real, but it is real. This is a Christmas night in Derry long ago. This is the best Christmas ever. Thank you. I have a complicated relationship with Santi. It started in junior infants when in the run-up to the festive season, I heard some very alarming facts. Facts from which my parents had protected me up to then. If the big girls in school were to be believed, it seemed that Christmas Eve, all calm and bright, was potentially the most treacherous night of the year because once darkness had fallen, a flashily dressed, long-bearded stranger broke into every house in the parish. <laughs> the night before Christmas, the big girls said, Santy will pick the lock on the front door. 
or if he's feeling especially energetic, he will enter your house via the chimney. You'll know he's coming when you hear the tapping of the reindeer's hooves on the galvanised roof. Then it's only a matter of seconds before Santi and his elves shimmy down the chimney, land on the good carpet in the parlour, and race up the stairs in their soot-stained pointy boots. And then, horror of horrors, they will creep into your bedroom to check that you're asleep. And if your eyelids so much as flutter, there's a strong chance they will leave a lump of coal on your bed instead of the longed-for doll's pram. And finally, to add insult to injury, the band of brigands will find their way to the kitchen, raid the good biscuit tin, and drink the contents of the priest's bottle. <laughs> when I warned my parents of the terrible events that would unfold on Christmas Eve, they assured me that they would meet Santi at the gate for the handover of toys, which they would then arrange in neatly labelled bundles on the sofa in the parlour. This reassured me and set my four-year-old mind at ease. But before the week was out, I discovered that while our house was a safe haven, the school was not. Every year on the day of the Christmas holidays, the good sisters of St. John of God invited Santi to school for the morning and prevailed upon him to distribute small gifts to the children in the little room. I didn't suspect a thing that morning because that day was like any other day in the little room. There was a lot of noise coming from the big room, the classroom which housed the senior classes, but we just rolled our murky green marla or drew pictures of Daddy Nanulog on that soft yellow paper that tore if you pressed too hard until the summons came to line up. And like little lambs, we trotted in single file through the glass partition into the big room. And the next thing I knew, I was face to face with old Saint Nick. He was smaller than I'd imagined. Roughly the same height as the six-class girls who flanked him. His face was half hidden by a red hood while his cloak flapped around a coat hanger thin body. When he leaned towards me, the full horror of this sinister manifestation was revealed. His face was a shiny mask, his bright red cheeks pockmarked and cracked with age. Small eyes gleamed in hollowed out sockets and the cavernous mouth, surrounded by a shabby woolly beard, was frozen in a grinning rictus. One of his bodyguards nudged him sharply, and he shot out a red-gloved hand. And then there were high-pitched screams and roaring and bawling, most of it mine, and I may have set off some other gently-raised children too. I don't know how I got home. I think some of the big girls escorted me up the village and restored me to the bosom of my family. But later that afternoon, there was a knock on the door. And convinced that Santi had found out where I lived and had followed me home, I hid under the table. But it was only one of the big girls delivering the toy that I had refused to accept from the esteemed visitor. A little rabbit made from soft white bonine was much admired by my mother. The beautiful stitching, the long ears, the fluffy tail, and the two bright red glass eyes that terrified me all over again. <laughs> Needless to say, my parents had to revisit their arrangements for the delivery of the presents on Christmas Eve. 
It was decided that my father would listen out for when the sleigh, pulled by a big whiskey-nosed reindeer and piloted by Mr. Claus and his merry band of inebriates would land in the haggard. And then he would run out and relieve Santy of his loot before he'd a chance to climb out. My mother promised she would stay upstairs until the sleigh could be heard rattling off towards Kilmore Quay. And only then would she go downstairs to check that the presents were correctly labelled. After all, any man who thought to send an evil-eyed rabbit to a little girl could very well mix up the presents and give her doll's pram to her brother. <laughs> and so it wasn't a surprise to me that my own children weren't overly thrilled with the idea of a motley crew having the run of the house just because it was Christmas. And in recent years, the grandchildren have voiced their objections to the late-night visitors. And so, on Christmas Eve, when I've locked the windows and barred the door, I throw a log on the fire and stoke it up until it's nice and hot, <laughs> just in case. Down, gather round. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. I was. I was standing at the butcher's counter in Cavan ten years ago, trying to make me mind up between a spicy sausage or a single lamb chop, when the butcher scrutinised me like I myself might be an old sheep that he needed to put down. <laughs> You're not yourself, he said. It's that time of year, I replied. I always get a bit melancholic in December. Oh, indeed, he said, I know what you mean. Sure, it gets to us all eventually, doesn't it? He didn't need to specify what he was talking about. We all know that in the deep midwinter, Melancholy turns to depression and doctors' surgeries fill up with people looking for tablets. Yes, the butcher admitted as he passed me the brown parcel of meat, I get a touch of it myself now and again. Personally, I don't have any answers to the mystery of depression. I'm not a psychotherapist. But I do know that 10 years ago, the melancholy of winter was so intense that I developed inertia in my limbs and my days were reduced to little more than feeding the cat. I got exhausted by even a single task. Only audio books could comfort me, a good novel and a big duvet. But I discovered that melancholy 
was communal. The more I talked about it, the better I felt. People were blue in the face listening to me going on about it. But talking was helping me. And there was consolation in knowing that many more people than me were suffering. Hundreds of weary souls in winter scattered across the country. I began to recognize them everywhere, walking the streets of Mullingar or standing at bus stops in Dublin. Despair triggered perhaps by age or a broken leg or a chronic illness or the unresolved trauma that gets repressed as we escape our own childhood. But the result was always the same. People walking with weary steps or struggling to get to the kitchen and make themselves a cup of tea. The trembling hands of creatures being devoured by disturbing emotions. People talk about battling depression. I had a friend who once described depression to me as being like a flock of crows. We were in a public house and he was nursing a pint. Depression is like a flock of crows, but you must never allow them sit on your shoulder, he said, as he dug his finger into my shoulder. <laughs> he treated his depression like a man in a shed with a gun waiting for the enemy to arrive. But the more he struggled to scatter the melancholy, the more it took hold of him in other ways. Personally, I could never endure that war. When it came to my door a decade ago, I just surrendered and went to bed for a year. Accepting depression was like allowing my body fall into an ocean without knowing how deep it might be or how far into the night the tide might carry me. I allowed the melancholy and sorrow to roll over me like waves whenever it arrived, which was mostly on winter evenings. I would fly to the bed, cherishing the safety of pillows and the music of Beethoven seeping up from speakers beneath the bed. And to be fair, it was a wonderful bed. And I love Beethoven. And I felt blessed to be suffering in such comfort. <laughs> the strange thing was that while remaining still and almost transfixed by a sense of sadness, I felt alive to the world around me. It was as if some presence other than me was in the room, holding me together. And outside the window, the same remote presence seemed to be holding the trees and the dark and ragged crows. Some transcendent ground of being, far greater than my little self, was holding everything when I looked out the window. The crows often came close to a tree beside the window. I welcomed them, and we would all sleep together. 
briefly free from the anxiety of existence. That was my coping mechanism. Surrendering to the dark was my pathway to the light. And that's why for me, Christmas will always be a metaphor. The light that shines in the darkness. As I say, I'm not a therapist, but if I have one word of hope about depression, it's from my own experience and it's this. The darkest hour of night did pass. It does pass. It will pass. The melancholy will lift, no matter how intense it feels to you right now. And when I see the light of a Christmas candle, or the coloured lights of a tree, or the faint glow of a Christmas crib, I realise that Christmas has become for me the most complete metaphor I've ever found for the human journey. An assurance that there is always a light and that it shines even in the darkness. In times of candlelight. It begins with the boxes, unloaded like treasure from the attic. What has survived the past year was the careful packaging enough to save all from harm. The figures for the crib are silent, but speak of protection for us from those who have passed away. This nativity scene, a gift given for tradition to carry on, once rested in my husband's house when he was a boy. They say, while midnight strikes on Christmas Eve, honeybees in their hive will hum a psalm. Cows in their cattle shed will bow towards the east, while deer and the forests will bend down to their knees, and the gates of heaven will be thrown open. Time is passing 
like the melt of snow angels. But I am able to lay out this crib once again, able to place a candle in the window, to welcome those who will return home, those who are always with us, those yet to arrive. Light a candle in prayer for the family's journey. It was December the 20th, 2010, Ireland's lowest recorded temperature ever, minus 17 degrees. The landscape looked like something out of a Tolstoy novel. In England, where they're better than we are at keeping records, they were able to work out that the temperature in the Midlands there was the lowest since 1649. And on December the 22nd, I wanted to cancel Christmas and go to bed, preferably with a couple of bottles of wine for company. Usually, I relish every last bauble on the tree, love the magic of the nativity story, and in defiance of my adult status, expect to be visited by Santa Claus. And in 2010, it looked as though we'd have a white Christmas, singing jingle bells as we dug out cars each morning. On the 19th, dear neighbor and friend Peter, still much missed since his premature death, braked his trusty ancient estate car as he went past, cheerily calling, I told you not to buy that rear wheel drive, as I toiled. He then dug it out for me, while I enriched my vocabulary at his expense. My plans for Christmas included a lunch party for eight on Christmas Eve, a fully festive four-course job with the same guests I'd had for many years. On the 23rd, there was another tradition. Another group of friends were always the staple of an afternoon drink session of champagne and my legendary, I like to think, mince pies. Legendary low temperatures would be no deterrent. And on Christmas Day, I would be royally and elegantly entertained, as always, by other friends. But December 22nd was the last straw. We'd been plagued by water rationing for days, with Dublin City Council issuing notices about when and for how long we'd be cut off each day. As I recall, the explanation was the extreme cold was making the pipes swell underground, and they had to try to ensure that they didn't burst as a result. It didn't sound reassuring. Then I opened the deep freeze, full of the festive fare for two sessions of hospitality, to find it had died. And I was faced with drawers full of gray mush. 
About the only thing that seemed still to be whole and entire were the two enormous fillets of beef intended for Christmas Eve. Any chance of a replacement freezer before Christmas? I appealed to several electrical suppliers. I can still hear them laughing. <laughs> Unwilling to let more than 100 quid's worth of best beef reach smelling point, I toiled through the almost knee-deep snow to friend Mary, whose freezer I hoped would have a bit of space. It did, bless her heart. But the water, the water. In or around the 21st, Dublin City Council generously announced that cuts and rationing would be abandoned over the three days of Christmas. It wasn't their problem, of course, that the frequent cuts had ensured that certain domestic customers had burst and frozen pipes. Mine were frozen. Not even a drip from any tap in the house. I called an emergency number, which turned out to be part of the operational end of things at DCC. And no, I was assured lugubriously, there wouldn't be any chance of my having any water until the 28th. And he personally had had, frightful word beginning with F, enough. I got the vague feeling that I was the most recent in a long, long line of callers. But I'd had enough too, I thought. Already I could smell myself, my last shower a three-day-old memory. Enter friend Peter again. He and his wife Natasha trudged the snow-drifted half-mile between our houses, carrying a five-gallon container of water. Anyway, said Tash consolingly, we all wash too much but I noticed she was keeping well upwind of me. <laughs> the lunch party was clearly off, but like the woman Crosby and Sinatra memorably sang about in high society, I'm a game gal. So the drinks party on the 23rd was still on. There's a rather pretty early 19th century table in my hall. A rising pile of snow boots, wellies, and galoshes mounted under it, snow and mush melting inexorably off them, to lap gently across the floor, the only liquid apart from alcohol in the house. And then there was the kitchen. I didn't dare let anyone in in case they'd stick to the floor or see the greasy dish cloths with which I was making an entirely ineffective effort to clean work surfaces for relays of mince pies and canapes as they left the oven. The sticky baking trays piled up in the dry sink the heap threatening to topple on the floor. The five-gallon container was being reserved for spot body washing and decanting into the loos. I began wondering what the symptoms of botulism were. <laughs> Unbelievably, it seemed to be a good party. And then there'd been another glow of Christmas spirit. I'd come home the previous evening to find my front entry and the pavement outside the house clear, gleaming, and free of the knee-high snow and ice. The Christmas fairy was my niece Jane, then a teenager, and knowing that guests were expected, she trudged round and cleared it. Christmas 2010 may have been a bit of a washout in some respects, but somehow I have fond memories.
I bought a new coat for Christmas. <laughs> and I surprised myself because it wasn't the kind of thing I would usually wear. It was a shearling coat made from the softest, warmest lamb's wool. It was the kind of coat that I always associated with football commentators sitting in a freezing cold gantry for an FA Cup third round match at Huddersfield, or TV detectives who drove Ford Capris, called women darling, and roughed up suspects in laneways before declaring, you're nicked. It was comfortable to an almost supernatural degree. But it was also true that it provoked strong opinions in people. I walked into a Dublin pub one night, and a man walking past me muttered a derogatory word, beginning with W, <laughs> to avoid sullying the Christmas atmosphere, we'll pretend that the word was wonder. I can't say that the man was altogether wrong in his assessment, because even I had a moment once when I caught sight of my reflection in a shop window on Clambrazzle Street, and I thought to myself, who is that complete and utter wonder? <laughs> you see, the coat was suggestive of a certain kind of attitude. You might even call it obnoxiousness. It was the kind of coat that if you walked down the wrong Dublin street, you were liable to get punched in the face. But then, one Christmas in New York, I was reminded that fashion, like so many things, is nothing more than a matter of context and timing. I was walking up Columbus Avenue. It was three weeks before Christmas. I just asked a woman to marry me. And she said yes. And if it looked like I was walking with a certain swagger, well, it's probably because I was. It was late in the afternoon and starting to get dark. All of the Christmas lights were on and a heavy snow was falling. We were standing in a pedestrian light at the junction of Columbus and West 43rd Street. And somewhere behind me, a voice said, hey, old school. The woman who had agreed to be my wife said, I think he might be talking to you. So I turned around, and there stood a man who looked a little bit worse for wear, and I noticed that he was smiling at me. He said, man, I love that coat. I said, thank you. He said, you're all the style, old school. You are all the style. You see, my coat was having its moment. It was wasted in Dublin. <laughs> this was a coat for a cold Manhattan afternoon that looked like a Christmas card. It was one of those rare times in my life when I felt perfectly centered. We crossed the road and we walked another block. My mind felt a bit swimmy. And there was a song in my head. Silver bells, silver bells, 
It's Christmas time in the city. Ring-a-ling, hear them ring. Soon it will be Christmas Day. And behind me, I heard a voice say, Hey, old school, give me that mother-flipping coat. <laughs> he didn't say mother-flipping. I'm paraphrasing. Hey, old school, give me that mother-flipping coat. From his take-no-prisoners New York tone, it was clear that the man appreciated my style in a way that was probably not healthy for either of us. So we quickly crossed the road and hurried up another block. But the man decided to follow us then, and for quite a considerable distance as well. We walked through the 40s and into the 50s, listening to a persistent background commentary in which my admirer mixed compliments with vague threats of violence. You're working it, old school. You are working it. I want that coat, you mother-flippin' mother-flipper. <laughs> all the style, old school, all the style. We quickened our pace. By the time we reached 59th Street, it had gone quiet. We looked behind us. We seemed to have burned him off. A block or two later, we stopped at another pedestrian light. A man coming in the opposite direction, Jay walked across the road. And as he passed us, he looked me up and down. A second later, I heard a voice say, did you see the coat? The man said, yeah, I saw the coat. I call him old school. I've got to have that coat. You want to follow him too? We took off up Columbus Avenue like two Olympic race walkers, not even stopping at junctions weaving our way through the crosstown traffic with angry horns blaring at us. We speed walked through the 60s and into the 70s without daring to look over our shoulders. Finally, we reached our destination, a boutique in the upper 70s. The woman who had agreed to marry me went behind a curtain to try and address, and the manager of the place said to me, honey, that's a lovely coat. <laughs> you know, it divides opinion, I said. People either want to hurt me because they hate it or hurt me because they love it. Well, she said, I love it. And by the way, can I ask you, is that gentleman with you? <laughs> I turned around. Our friend had his two hands pressed against the window, perfectly framing his face. Hey, old school, he shouted. Give me that mother-flipping coat. Two of New York's finest eventually arrived to move the man along. But I remember him fondly. Every December, when I take my coat out of the wardrobe and I put it on. My wife will come and 
stand behind me as I'm checking myself out in the mirror, and she'll say, are you wearing your wonder coat tonight? <laughs> and I'll say, I don't know. I mean, is it, is it really me? And she'll say, all the style, old school. <laughs> all the style. Christmas Miscellany with the RTE Concert Orchestra and special guests. Recordings from earlier this month in the National Concert Hall in Dublin and the National Opera House in Wexford, mixed through with past recordings from the National Concert Hall event in recent years. The readings were Mrs Timoney on a Sled by Neil Hegarty, The Fright Before Christmas by A.M. Cousins, the Meaning of Christmas was by Michael Harding. In Times of Candlelight, a poem by Denise Blake. 2010, The Christmas Ireland Sang the Song of the Volga Boatmen by Emer O'Reilly. And Christmas Coat by Paul Howard. The music, performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra and conducted by David Brophy, was Snow Ride by Angela Morley. Santa Claus is Coming to Town, composed by Fred Coots and Haven Gillespie and arranged for orchestra by Paul Frost. The singer was Grony Brookfield. Because, by the Beatles, with an intro based on Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. The arranger was Brian Connor. Silent Night, also sung by Grony Brookfield, arranged by Paul Campbell. Vivaldi's Winter, arranged by Gavin Murphy and featuring the RTE Concert Orchestra leader, Mia Cooper. The conductor there was Gavin Maloney. And Silver Bells, sung by Lisa Lam and Kermuk Knevey. The arranger was Paul Campbell and the conductor was, again, Gavin Maloney. On sound in Dublin were Gar Duffy and Damien Gavigan and in Wexford, Pather Carney and Liam Mullen. And tomorrow morning at 11am, there'll be a full miscellany programme from the National Opera House Wexford, featuring a host of Wexford-themed stories and songs. And one more miscellany offering today, at a quarter to five, on RTE Radio 1, you can tune in to Miscellany Extra, some Christmas trimmings from regular contributors. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.